You're listening to the Central City Assembly podcast. We're dedicated to sharing content that magnifies and multiplies Jesus for the good of our city and helps you grow in your love for Jesus. So enjoy this episode and may you be filled with the love of God the Father. It's not actual code. It's my fake made-up code that I made just for this to make sense. No bugs? That's good. So it should run perfectly. Um, all right, so in, in November of 1789, does anybody kind of know that time frame? 1789, just a short time after the U.S. Constitution was written and ratified, um, Benjamin Franklin wrote to a friend saying, um, our new Constitution is now established. Everything seems to promise it will be durable. But in this world, nothing is certain except, can anybody finish the line? Death and taxes. Yeah, you got it. Uh, Now, over 200 years later, I wonder what Benjamin Franklin would say today. Uh, Death is still very real, and we're still paying taxes, but even the U.S. Constitution doesn't seem as durable as maybe it once was. Now, I I don't say that to make any kind of political statement or or any point like that, but to point out the the fact that the list of of what we think is durable or constant or certain, it seems to get smaller and smaller as time passes on. Can we all agree on that together? Things that were once considered as irrefutable fact just 20 years ago and for thousands of years before that are now in question. Uh, systems and organizations that have allowed the world to operate the way it does um, are now unstable, and they're on the brink of collapse. Now, I'm purposely kind of being vague in my examples because I'm not trying to draw attention uh, to any specific situations, Um, but I am trying to argue this, that uncertainty is the default posture of the world. Uncertainty is the default posture of the world. Think about it. We are trained from a young age to question everything, right? And to get input from multiple different sources before coming to some kind of conclusion. And even when we do come to a conclusion, we're encouraged to have an open mind that something might change and we might have to change our conclusion again. Now, this kind of thinking is fine when it comes to things like the the scientific method or, or developing technologies and things like that. But when it's applied to, let's say, morality, what is right and what is wrong, this kind of thinking doesn't work. It's it's crippling. Um, Because now we live in a culture where what is right and what is wrong in one moment and context is completely different in the next. And how can anyone be certain that what they are doing is right or wrong when it's always changing from one moment to the next? And for someone to say in our culture today, I am certain that this is right, I am certain that this is wrong, um, is actually seen as unpopular uh, or even unacceptable in our culture. Because the people will say, well, who are you to say that that's morally correct or morally incorrect? How do we know that's actually right or wrong? Well, what do other people have to say? We need to get input from multiple sources and and be open-minded 
And when you think about it in that way, it seems like it's more culturally acceptable to be uncertain than it is to be certain. And if this kind of thinking, it causes problems for morality, then what kind of problems do you think it would cause for faith? Uh, Did you know that according to Pew Research, there are more agnostics in the U.S. than there are atheists? More agnostics than, than atheists. An atheist is someone who is certain that there's no God. And then an agnostic is someone who is uncertain whether there is a God or not. And the number of agnostics in the U.S. is growing faster than the number of atheists. And a lot of that growth is just transfer growth. Um, It's people who are once certain that there is no God, atheists, and people who are certain there is a God, religious people. They're all coming to the middle, and they'd rather just say, I don't know. I don't know. I'm uncertain, rather than make a, a confident statement one way or another, because uncertainty is the default of our culture today. Am I convincing you yet? Okay, but, but take this a step further. Um, this uncertainty is even creeping into the church. Uh, confidence and certainty when it comes to things like the authority and inerrancy and inspiration of scripture, all of it is on the decline in the church today. More and more people are uncertain about scripture, about the Bible than ever before. Uh, when it comes to orthodoxy, the things that have been taught as truth of our, and pillars of our faith for thousands of years, more and more people are uncertain about those things today. Even when it comes to things that are clearly stated in Scripture as right and wrong, now many in the church, they're uncertain. Is that what God really meant whenever he said that? Which sounds an awful lot to me like uh, what a certain serpent once said to a certain couple in a garden uh, long, long ago. This default posture of uncertainty is what the enemy has been working on since the very beginning. Did God really say that? And this posture of uncertainty is even having a negative effect on people who truly want to follow Jesus, who believe God is real, who believe in the Son, who believe in the Spirit and the inspired Word. Because while they might believe that God really is who he says he is, they are uncertain about what he says about them. I believe in God, but does he really love me? I believe in Jesus, but did he really save me? I believe in the cross, but am I really forgiven? Am I really set free? Am I really saved? Do I really have eternal life? Uncertainty is the default posture of the world, and it's gradually becoming the default posture of many in the church today. What about you? What about you? Well, my job today, um, along with the help of the Apostle John, is to show you that death and taxes are not the only certain things in this world. Amen? Uh, My job today is to show you that Christians are called to be countercultural, not in the way that we typically hear about that, right? Um, But that Christians are called to be certain in a world of uncertainty. We are called to be and we can be certain about many things when it comes to our faith in God. And I think it's this certainty that the church needs now more than ever in order to see God's kingdom come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So that's my setup for this morning. It's going to be an exciting morning, okay? You ready for it? Um, The title of today's final message from John's first letter, and I'm borrowing this from a Frozen 2 soundtrack, um, is called Certain Certainties. All right, let's pray before we continue and jump into the Word. Lord, we are so grateful for you. 
We are so grateful that you reveal yourself to us. You show us who you are. You show us what you're about, what you believe is right, or what is right, what is true. And God, our, our hope and our desire is to be certain in this uncertain world. Because that's what we need to be confident, to spread your word, to spread your gospel. So would you continue to help us to be certain about the things of you, God, in our own lives, our own faith. Show us who you are. Let us all leave here more certain than we were when we came in. We love you, Jesus. We thank you. We say all of these things in your mighty name. And everybody said, amen. All right, let's open our Bibles to 1 John chapter 5. And we're going to read verse 13 all the way to the end. All the way to the end. So go ahead and get your digital Bibles out, your physical Bible, whatever you have. Uh, let's honor the word of God this morning by getting our eyes on it right in front of us. We will have scripture on the screen, but it makes a difference whenever you do the work, all right? If you need a Bible, we've got some Bibles in the back. You're happy, glad to take one of those, or welcome to take one of those. Keep it for yourself. Um, but can you believe that we're finishing up First John today? Um, I thought we were going to only spend 10 weeks in this letter, which is not a short time, um, but we just needed a little bit longer, 13 weeks to be exact. Um, but I think the time has been well spent. Um, I truly do believe that First John is such an important letter for followers of Jesus in the times that we're living in right now. Um, we need certainty in this uncertain world. I'm going to be saying that a lot today. Uh, and John, he helps us with that. This letter... Uh, for me, it's also helped me be planted, which is our theme for the entire year, uh, because a certain Christian is a planted Christian. A confident Christian is a planted Christian, um, planted and rooted in the things of God. All right, so when you are certain that you've arrived at 1 John chapter 5, say, I'm certain. All right, then I'm going to keep going. Verse 13 says this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. That you may know, everybody say no. That you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know, everybody say no. If we know that he hears us and whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked him. If anyone sees his brother or sister committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. Verse 18, we, if you're catching on, there we go. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who has been born of God protects him. And the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God. And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. So that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true. In his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Verse 21. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Right, so um, a good thing to practice when studying a specific passage of the Bible is to take note of any words that are repeated a lot, okay? Um, if that word is repeated, it probably means that it's important and it's pointing to a theme of the passage. And you can kind of hone in and study that word a little bit more. Now, what word did you notice is repeated in this passage several times? 
you got it. Well done. You do, well done. Um, John uses this word, no, um, quite often throughout the entire letter. We've re read it so many times. Um, and, I, and I've even said previously that First John is a book of knowing. John wants us to know. And John uses the word seven times in this passage alone. All right, but um, we're going to get into some Greek this morning because it's really important. It helps us understand this passage. Um, but there are two words for the word to know in Greek. And John uses both of them throughout this letter. Now, one of them is gnosko. Everybody say gnosko. It's gnosko. Um, and it means, or John uses it when he talks about knowing God. Uh, there's a, a relational aspect to this knowing the other Greek word for to know is oida. Everybody say oida. And we're all butchering these together, okay? If you asked a Greek person how to say it, they'd be like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Okay. Um, oida, which John uses when he talks about knowing what is true or fact. Okay? Um, and in th this passage that we just read, all seven times we read this word, know, it's the Greek word oida. And so when John says to know that you have eternal life, he's saying to know it is a fact that you have eternal life. Or we can actually put the words together in one sentence um, by saying this. Um, when we know God relationally, that's gnosko, we can know we have eternal life certainly. That's oida. You see the difference, right? And that's what John has been communicating throughout this whole letter up until this point. Right, up until now, in this letter, he's primarily used the word gnosko. He, he's laid the foundation of knowing God, knowing his son Jesus, knowing his spirit, knowing who his children are, knowing what his commandments are. These are all gnosko knowing. But in these final verses of this letter, he's saying that this foundational, relational gnosko knowing, it needs to result in something. It needs to lead to something in your life. And what he's saying is that it ultimately leads to oida knowing, right? Knowing for certain that you have eternal life. Now here's another way that we can say it um, is that our knowing for certain that we have eternal life is built on the foundation of relationally knowing God. I'm going to say that again because I think that's really the whole letter of John. Uh, knowing for certain that we have eternal life is built on the foundation of relationally knowing God. Meaning we can't have certainty about these things unless we know God relationally. Verse 13 actually says it really well. John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Are you saying you have faith in God? You believe in his Son. You, you know him. And the result of this knowing should be that you may know for certain that you have eternal life. Do you see it? Is that making sense, those two words? Um, and I would ask the question to you. As you've gotten to know God the Father, what has that done for your certainty that you have eternal life? As you've gotten to know throughout this letter that God is light, that God is love, that he's expressed his light and his love in powerful ways by sending his son Jesus to live, die, and rise from the dead for us. Right, by, by empowering us with his Holy Spirit, has that made you more certain that you have eternal life? Well, John's hope and my hope is that you would be more certain. Okay, but there's so much more um, 
to, to be certain of as a result of our having relationship with God the Father. Okay, certainty that you have eternal life, that's already like quite comforting if you ask me, right? Knowing for certain that when you face certain death in this world, you'll experience certain life in the next, that's amazing, right? But also, like we talked about last week, eternal life doesn't just begin when you die. It begins when you testify that Jesus Christ is the Son of God come in the flesh. In that moment, eternal life begins. Because eternal life isn't just about quantity, it's about quality. And the quality of your present life improves when you become a follower of Jesus. You can be certain of this. All right? And, and with that certainty of eternal life comes with it uh, certainties that we can have in this present life. Uh, and in verses 14 through 21, uh, John gives us four certain certainties that we can have as a result of knowing God. Four certainties that are counterculture to our uncertain world. You want to hear those this morning? All right, if you're taking notes, there's four of them, and I'll, I'll list them out as we go, all right? Um, the first is that we can be certain our intercessions are answered. We can be certain our intercessions are answered, or that our prayers are answered. Now, when you think about it, the, the world is uncertain about prayer because they often go to prayer as a last resort. Right? Listen, everyone prays. I don't care who you are. Everyone prays. The whole world prays. Even atheists will admit to praying at some point in their life, crying out, even if it's out into the open for help, hoping someone will hear them. But it's usually only when they've exhausted all of their efforts. Uh, the world is uncertain about prayer because they often go to prayer as a last resort. Right? If you're not certain about it, why go to that first, right? But the follower of Jesus is supposed to be certain about prayer. And we see evidence of this certainty when it's not the last resort in a believer's life, but it's the first resort. Do you hear what I'm saying? That's the difference between the world and followers of Jesus. Right? That's the difference between uncertainty about prayer and certainty about prayer. And so my question to you this morning, one of many that I have for you today, is do you pray like the world or do you pray like a child of God? Are you certain about prayer or are you uncertain about prayer? John says we need to be certain about prayer. Now, um, since John has used so much family language throughout this letter, and we've, we've kind of hit on that a few different times, I must think of this in terms of family. Okay, a, a good parent is always open to the requests of their children. A good parent is always willing to hear what their kids have to say. Now, if we knew a parent who says to their kids, don't you ever ask me for anything, we would all be like, ugh, right? We'd say, hey, we have this uh, book study on Tuesday nights called Connection Codes. Uh, you should come. You know what? Just come. I'm going to buy you the book. You need to come to this right, right away. Right? Good parents are always open to and they want to hear the requests of their kids no matter what it is. All right? And God is a good parent. He's a perfect father. And like John says in verse 14, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, our Father in heaven, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Did you hear that? Right, we have a Father in heaven to whom we can confidently go and ask him anything, anything. Now John, um, he adds 
anything according to his will, and we'll talk about that in a moment. Um, but if you remember Jesus, in, in John's own gospel, Jesus said, ask me anything. Ask me anything. And so um, we have a Father in heaven who when we pray to him and ask him for anything, number one, he hears us. He hears us. Okay, do you understand how mind-blowing this is? Okay, think about the world again. The world talks a lot these days. It's kind of a, a catchy thing to say, right, about sending things out into the universe, right, and manifesting our desires and our wants. Have you heard that before? I'm just going to talk to the universe right now. I'm going to send out my desires, and hopefully something will come back. I'm just going to manifest my desires. You've heard that before, right? And what I want to say to those people is, do you know how big the universe is? <laughs> Can you comprehend how big it is? And if the, the speculators are correct, then it's multi as well. It's not just one. And that's like putting a note inside of a bottle, throwing it out into the ocean, and then hoping to get a letter back, right? But multiply that by a bajillion because we're talking about the ocean or the universe. Okay, this is crazy. But what I'm thankful for is that I have the name and the address of someone who is bigger than the universe. In fact, he created it. Right? And, and what I want to say to these people is, have you tried that yet? Going to the one who created the universe rather than trying to talk to the universe? I can send my prayers. I can send my questions, my desires directly to him. And John just said that he hears us. He hears us. Okay, I'm confident, I'm certain that my prayers are received by the greatest person in the universe. Now listen. Um, there are some things that will prevent God from hearing our prayers, namely sin. Listen to what Isaiah said, Isaiah chapter 59, verse 2. He says, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. It's important that we keep from sinning if we want our prayers to be heard. And John, he's already said this multiple times throughout this whole letter. He's going to say it again in this passage. And so he's already laid out the expectation. But I thought it important to mention that again, especially with our prayers being heard. But when we are following Jesus and obeying his commands, God hears our prayers. That's incredible. But not only that, if our prayers, John says, are in accordance with his will, then God will answer our prayers. John chapter, or 1 John chapter 5, verse 15, he says this, And if we know that he hears us, and whatever we ask, we know, we're certain, that we have the requests that we have asked of him. Again, let's think about this in terms of family. Okay, good parents often have an idea uh, about what is good and right for the well-being of their children. Parents, would you agree with that statement? Yes. And good parents often have an idea, right, what's good, for their well-being of their children. And if a child asks their parents for something that falls in line with what they believe is good and right for the well-being of their children, then parents will gladly answer that request, won't they? They should. Now, um, if a child asks for something that does not fall in line with what is good and right for their well-being, should a parent answer that request? Okay, we all know that they shouldn't, right? Now, sometimes... We give our kids uh, what they want to help them understand that what they want is actually not good for them. And we do that in a controlled, supervised environment so they learn from their consequences without, like, chopping an arm off or something, right? And so, but for the most part, good parents don't give their children 
whatever they ask for. That, that's not a good strategy for life. And so we understand this in family terms, don't we? Why do people often struggle so much then to apply this exact same concept in relation to our heavenly father? Right? Because if we ask God for the things according to his will, which again, put it in those his will is just what he believes is good and right for the well-being of his children. That's his will. And if we ask according to his will, God is gladly going to answer our prayers because he's a perfect father. Of course he is. But if we ask something that isn't in line with his will, his idea of what is good and right for the well-being of his children, then he's not going to answer that prayer. And we should be thankful for that, church family. Now, there are times, like we just talked about, where even God, he does answer our bad requests to help us see that they were bad requests. Think about the nation of Israel. They constantly asked God for an earthly king. And God initially said, no, you don't need a king. I'm your king. Just follow me, obey my commandments, and you'll be fine. But they just kept asking God over and over and over, give us a king, God, give us a king. And God eventually said, fine. And he was very clear with them. He said, you can have a king, but he's not going to rule over you well. You can have a king, but he's not going to care for you the way that I will. And Israel said, that's fine. We still want a king, God. Give us a king. And so if you know the story, Saul becomes king and terrible things happen. Bad things happen. He's a bad king. And what does God say? I told you so. I told you so. But in his grace, in his mercy, God then gives them a good king. But the key is, is that this king doesn't rule according to his own will. He rules according to God's will. King David was a man after God's own heart, which means that he, he was a man after God's will for his people. And sometimes, if we just take it a, another step further, sometimes our kids ask us for things that they're not bad, but we just know that it's not the right time for it yet. Okay, ice cream isn't bad. Is it? We can all agree to that, right? Ice cream isn't bad. But right before bed is not a good time, is it? It's not a good time. Getting a driver's license, learning how to drive a car, it's not bad. But seven-year-olds shouldn't be doing that, right? And so some of our desires, our requests that we bring to God, they're not bad. But according to God's timing and his goodwill for us, he's just saying it's not the right time. And we have to trust God, who, whose will is always for our benefit. Do you hear what I'm saying this morning, church family? All right, and then so moving on in the passage, um, then John gives us an example of something that's within God's will that we should ask for every single time, and he wants to answer it every single time, okay? Um, and one of the things that is always in God's will and that we should always ask him for is that people, especially fellow believers, would stop sinning and obey his commandments, that they would stop sinning and obey his commandments. Verses 16 and 17 say this, If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, he shall pray, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. Again, John has made this very clear throughout this entire letter that one of our goals in life as followers of Jesus should be to stop sinning, right? But John also knows that Christians do sin on occasion. We fall short. We make mistakes. Now, I can't emphasize this enough. That's not an excuse to just keep on sinning then and to not even try to stop. 
Because as we've read before, if we love God, we'll keep his commandments. But John says that if we see one of our brothers or sisters in Christ um, who, who are committing sin, we should call them out publicly. We should shame them until they repent and turn their face back to God. I'm just making sure you're listening. That is not what John says, right? And aren't you thankful for that? That's not what John says. No, he says this, ask God, right? Pray to God that that person would recognize their wrong and stop sinning because God, through his Holy Spirit, he's the one who ultimately must convince people of their sin. And he's better at that than you and I are, okay? Some of us need to hear that this morning, right? That, that's one of the Holy Spirit's jobs. Now, elsewhere in scripture, like in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, write it down, go read it. We read about a Christian's responsibility to help restore fellow believers who have fallen into sin. And, and oftentimes that requires confronting that person in their sin. But we do so with gentleness. That's the key word in that passage, in that verse. But listen, too often I think we are quick, we are quick to call someone out on their sin before we've ever even prayed for them, like John tells us to in these verses. Right? And we should pray first because God's will is that his child will stop sinning. So he hears that prayer. We've already established that. And he will answer that prayer. We're establishing that now. We should pray that God would lead his children back to life, which means back to a life of obedience. Okay, God is much better at accomplishing his will than we are. He's so much better at it. So we should first and foremost pray for fellow believers who we see sinning and trust God to fulfill his will. And if necessary, and sometimes it is necessary, then we go to that person in gentleness and love and show them where they're sinning. And Jesus has lots of different things about, you know, don't go to that person. You've got a, a, a log in your eye. You're talking about somebody's speck, right? We need to be careful with those things. Now, one thing that I want to add to this that I don't have in my notes is um, something practical that I think we can do to apply this right now, and actually for the whole month of June. Uh, the first of June was the beginning of Pride Month, right? It's the beginning of Pride Month. And so what we can do practically is there are many people, even people who profess to be followers of Jesus, who, who are living in, in lifestyles that God clearly says are wrong, right? And, and people who are suffering from, from mental illness, transgenderism, I'm, I'm, it's a mental illness. In the psychology books, that's what it calls it. And it's when we act on those things in our minds and try to alter our bodies, that's when we jump into sin. And there are followers of Jesus who will identify with this. It's wrong. And so what I would challenge you to do every single day this month is pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ who are living in sin. Can we do that together? Pray that they would see Jesus, that they would know Jesus, that they would know his will for their lives and they'd be transformed. Isn't that so much better than just making a ruckus about all this stuff sometimes? Now, there's a time to make a ruckus, but are we even praying for our brothers and sisters in Christ who are suffering in this? Can we do that together? All right. Now, um, I know you're all wondering what in the world is this sin that leads to death and sin that does not lead to death? Okay, well, there are some layers to this, and I'd be a bad pastor if I didn't address this. Um, I could easily just skip over it, keep going, but we need to talk about it. Um, first, what we need to understand is that without Christ, all sin leads to death, right? 
Without Christ, all sin leads to death, death for our bodies and death for our souls. But because of Christ, and when we put our faith in him, we've been rescued from that ultimate penalty for our sin. Can somebody say amen? Right? Okay, second, we have to recognize that John is addressing believers in these verses. Right? He's talking about believers who've been rescued by Jesus from that ultimate penalty of death because of their sin, but they've messed up in some way. And like we just read, we are to pray for that believer that God would help them stop sinning and turn back to him. That should be our first thing, okay? But there is still sin that a believer can commit that will lead to death. And it's not spiritual eternal death for our souls, but it's physical death for our bodies. Sin that we can commit that will lead to physical death for our bodies. Sin that, that God looks at and says, this could potentially cause incredible damage to other believers, to the church as a whole, uh, and even to the believer who commits the sin, and it would be better off if they no longer lived and instead went to be with Jesus. Now, I know this is probably shaking some of you up right now, okay? But bear with me and let me explain. Okay, there is biblical precedent for this. There are examples in scripture that talk about this. For example, do you remember the story of Ananias and Sapphira? They were members of the early church. They were followers of Jesus. If you don't know the story, um, here's the short version. Uh, this married couple, they lied to the Holy Spirit about an offering that they gave to the church, and they both fell dead to the floor right at the apostles' feet. You can read it in Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. I don't have time to go into it. Then another example, some believers at the church of Corinth, they died because of the way they were taking communion the way they were dishonoring the blood, and the, uh, the blood and the body of Jesus, and they died. You can read that in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 30. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, Paul talks about a man who had taken his own stepmother as his wife. And Paul says to the church, clearly, deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, which means that he will die, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now, when we look at these sins, categorically speaking, they're all over the place. Some of us are like, man, I've lied before. Oh, no, right? Hopefully none of us have taken our own step. That's a, Never mind. Um, so these are, these are categorically all over the place. And so what I'm not going to do this morning is give you a list of sins that leads to death and a list of sins that doesn't lead to death. Okay? Because that's not the point John is trying to make. And what are those sins, that question... Um, that's not the right question to ask, okay? The right question to ask is, are you so in love with God the Father? Are you so in love with Jesus, so close to him, that sinning is the last thing on your mind? That's the question that we need to be asking. And if the answer to that question is yes, then you don't need to worry about whether or not you're committing sin that's going to lead to mortal death for your body. You don't have to worry about that. This is the easiest way to avoid all this. Love God, keep his commandments. And when we do that, we can be certain that our intercessions, our prayers are answered. All right, so that's the first certainty. I spent a long time on that one because it's a big chunk of the, the passage, all right? But we're going to move on to the second one. We're going to pick things up a little bit. All right, everybody take a deep breath, okay? Everything's okay. Nobody's dropping dead this morning, okay? All right, the second certain certainty is that we can be certain iniquity is avoided. We can be certain that iniquity 
is avoided, which is really what I just talked about. When we know God through personal relationship with him, when we, we are so in love with him that we're set on keeping his commandments, sinning will be the last thing on our minds and, and sin will be avoided in our lives. But also, um, it says that God will protect us from the enemy who tries to draw us away from the family of God and into a life of sin. Iniquity is avoided. Or this is the way John says it. 1 John chapter 5, verse 18. We know, we are certain that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. Talking about habitual, continual sin. Right? But he who has been born of God protects him. That's Jesus. And the evil one does not touch him. Now, let's think of it this way. If you are with your kids at a park and you see some shady-looking stranger walk up to them and start handing them these little bags of who knows what, are you going to just sit there and watch that happen? Are you going to sit idly by and be like, okay, they're having fun? No. That papa bear and mama bear inside of you is going to rise up, and you're going to go over to that stranger, and you're going to tell them what's up, right? And you're going to be ready to throw down if you have to. You better, right? You're going to protect your kids, right? You're not going to let that stranger touch them or influence them in any kind of way. And that's what John is saying in verse 18. Um, but to put it in terms that are, are probably more relevant to, to the readers of his time, um, we can think of a shepherd protecting his sheep. Now, in ancient times, and even in, in more uh, agricultural cultures today, uh, you can see shepherds holding two things. Um, a staff, and a shepherd, which is a shepherd's crook, and a rod, which is like a club. And if I had, oh, look at that, I, I have a, I have I have a staff here this morning. I'm going to try to do this while also holding a microphone. I have a staff here this morning, and I have a rod, okay? Um, now, a staff or, or, or a shepherd's crook was meant to uh, pull the shepherd's sheep close to them and to keep them from wandering away out of sight into potential danger. So they would literally grab the sheep and pull them close to them if they saw them wandering away. Um, but another thing that they would do with their, their shepherd's crook is if th there was some kind of animal trying to attack the sheep, they would get their shepherd's crook and pull them close. Because what do you think a sheep is going to do if they're being attacked? They're going to try and take off running, right? And if they run away from the shepherd, they're for sure going to be taken out by that jackal. And so the shepherd would pull the sheep in close to them. And then, if necessary, if that jackal kept attacking, grab the rod and beat the mess out of that jackal. Destroy him if he could. Check this out. Psalm chapter 23, verses 1 through 4. Many of us know this passage. David wrote, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. What David and John are both saying is that we have a good shepherd who has a rod in one hand and a staff in the other, and he's ready to use them when necessary. Do you hear what I'm saying? to keep us from wandering, but also to draw us close when the enemy attacks and to go to blows with the enemy so he can't grab a hold of us and take us away from the family of God. The image of our shepherd with a rod and a staff shouldn't cause us to be afraid of him. It should cause us extreme comfort. 
extreme uh, feelings of, of safety and security because he's our shepherd with the rod and the staff. I'm going to set these down real quick. Now, who prefers that image of Jesus over the, you know, meek and mild kind of Jesus? I like that Jesus so much better, right? Okay, third certain certainty is we can be certain that our independence is apparent. We can be certain that our independence is apparent. Uh, As a child of God, it means that you live and you operate according to his ways, which means that you are set free from having to live according to the world's ways, which only knows how to live one way. It's for self all the time. You have the freedom to live counter to the culture of our world and the one way that they know how to live because you know a better way. You know the best way. You know the way, the truth, and the life. And so John says it this way in 1 John 5, verse 19. We know, we are certain that we are from God. And the whole world, on the other hand, lies in the power of the evil. Now, whose hands are holding you right now? God's or the evil ones? If you're a child of God, then you know the answer to that. And whose hands are more powerful? God's. He's the one with the staff and the rod, right? Or some other verses that we've read in this letter, they say, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Right? Or you have overcome the world, John has told us. And so you are no longer a slave, but you've been set free to live a better life in the hands and in the protection of a better shepherd, a better father. You don't have to live in uncertainty like the rest of the world. You can live in certainty, and you can be certain that your independence is apparent. So that was a quick one. Finally, the last one, the fourth certain certainty is that you can be certain that our insight is accurate. Our insight is accurate. Uh, Pontius Pilate accurately reflected the world's understanding of things when he said, truth, what is truth? And this is the current status of the world we live in, right? Some people call it relativism. Uh, Some try to put a spin on it and say, well, you have your truth and I have my truth as if there are multiple truths and that's the opposite of what truth is. It doesn't make sense. And all this really leads to is more confusion and more uncertainty. But as a child of God, indwelt by the spirit of God, who is also the spirit of truth, we can be certain that our insights are accurate. What we know to be true from God's word, it's accurate. In the last two verses of this letter, Verses 20 and 21, John says, And we know, we are certain that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him with certainty who is true. And we are in him who is true in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Verse 21, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Now, I'll admit, when I first read verse 21, I was like, where did that come from, John? Why are you ending with that? And what does that have to do with the rest of it? It has a lot to do. Because John's saying, if we know that God is real, if we are certain of it and all that means of who God is, then why would we settle for anyone or anything else? Why would we worship and settle for idols which are not real at all? Now, during John's time, he had physical, material figures and and statues in his mind when he was thinking about idols. Now, in the modern West, we don't have little statues and figures that we worship and pray to. In other parts of the world, that that does still happen. 
statues of, of funny little fat men that they pray to or, or images of creatures and, and gods that are revered in worship. That, that does happen. Um, but that doesn't mean idol worship isn't still alive and active in the West today. It most certainly is. So here's a definition of, of an idol. Let's throw that up on the screen. An idol is anything in your life that takes the place of God, simply put. An idol is anything that takes the place of God. And God is meant to be the Lord over every aspect of our lives. Not just parts, over every aspect of our lives. And oftentimes, and and we're all guilty of this, oftentimes we'll set God over certain parts of our lives, but not others. Okay, God, I set you over my life for the forgiveness of sins and, and so that I might have eternal life. But over here, you know what? I'll be the Lord of my finances, right? Or, you know, I'm going to worship work. I'm going to depend on work as my source provision. And over here in in the area of relationships, I'm going to worship other people, and and I'm going to depend on them to bring me satisfaction and fulfillment in my life. And over here, you know what? I'm going to look to sex and, and substance and entertainment for my source of pleasure and joy. But God is meant to be our ultimate source of provision. Our satisfaction and fulfillment, our pleasure and joy should all come from God ultimately. And in this way, there are many, even in the church, who believe in God, but they're actually polytheistic in their worship of him, right? in their religion, because they not only depend on God, but they also look to other gods and idols as their sources. And this is how the nation of Israel lived, if you've read the Old Testament. God, we believe in you, but we're also going to believe in these idols over here. They tried to keep their feet in both kingdoms, one or the other, and God said, no way. You worship me and only me, or you get none of me. And John's warning us of this same thing. Because if you know for certain that God is the true God and the only one who can offer eternal life, both in the afterlife and in this life, then why worship idols? Why look to other things as your sources? But oftentimes the reason we put other people and things above God or in place of God is because we're more certain of them than we are of God. And so John is encouraging us. He's saying, your insight is accurate. God is real. Jesus, his son, and what he offers you, it's real. It's true. He's given you the spirit of truth to live inside you and lead you and guide you through this life. He is truth and eternal life. So don't look to other sources for truth in life. He's right there. Be certain of who God is and who you are in him. Your insight is accurate. You can be certain. You can be countercultural to our uncertain world. And so to close, we've gone through all four. So to close, and Annette, you can come on up. Here's what I want you to think. If, if you could rate or if you could rank your certainty on a scale of one to ten, being one, being absolutely uncertain, right? And 10, being absolutely certain. How would you rate yourself this morning? And I think that's ultimately what John is trying to help us figure out as he closes this letter, right? He wants us to be certain of who God is and what that means for us, his children. And so he's actually giving us these four certain certainties, really more like evaluation tools, And we can ask ourselves, am I certain that my prayers are being answered? Am I certain that my iniquity is being avoided, that God is protecting me? Am I certain that I am independent from the world? I don't have to live like them anymore. 
Am I certain in what I believe to be true and right? And so we can look at these four things and we can evaluate. And what we then do is, if there's any uncertainty, John would tell us this, turn your eyes back to God. Get to know God and who he is. Know God as your foundation so that you can know for certainty everything else that he offers us and provides us. Know God. And John, um, as has been true since the very beginning, he finishes up his letter uh, still kind of acting like that computer programmer that we talked about at the very beginning. This whole book, this whole letter is just a long string of if-then conditional statements. If you do this, then this will happen. If you do that, then this will happen. And John's been trying to help us uh, produce an outcome in our lives. And the outcome is this, certainty, that you would know that you know. And so has John succeeded in writing this letter for you? His hope and my hope is that you are more sure of your faith now than when we first started this letter. That you are more confident in who God is and who you are as one of his children than you were at the beginning of this letter. Thank you for listening. If you are blessed by this episode and would like to help us create more content that magnifies and multiplies Jesus, would you consider giving a financial gift of any amount today? Whatever you give will go towards building the kingdom of God in the lives of people all over the world. Thank you for your support, and we pray many blessings over you.